You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Mark Troutman, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I usually start each episode of Earn and Invest with a personal story. And as a hospice doctor, I've had the privilege of being privy to hundreds of people's life stories as they reach the end of a terminal diagnosis. I can talk of what the dying regret and what they revel in, their mistakes in life, financial and otherwise. What does building a good life look like and what role does money play? Today, however, instead of my stories, we're going to delve into those of my friend, Mark Troutman, how he built a strong financial framework, how he and his wife retired, and how that solved some of his problems, but sadly, not others. Mark Troutman has a relatable backstory growing up without a strong foundation with matters of personal finance. It took many mistakes, years of trial and error, and self-education to learn basic principles of wealth building and retirement planning, despite spending his career in the financial services industry. He made a considerable turnaround with his finances and retired at age 50. Mark was married in 1990. His wife, Marge, was a constant companion during their financial and retirement journey. She was diagnosed with sarcoma in 2019 and died in 2021. Mark Troutman, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I want to take this back to the beginning a little bit. You weren't always good with money, right? Despite the fact that you grew up in the financial services industry? Yeah. So I grew up in the Northeast. I went to work on Wall Street after graduating from college. And as you can imagine, I was immersed in the Wall Street culture. I wasn't a trader necessarily. I was more in the back office operations side. But what you saw and, you know, kind of the money script that I saw were people that were, whether they were traders or investment bankers, they were spending a lot, they were making a lot, they were spending a lot. And what kind of showed your status was, you know, what kind of watch you had, what kind of suit you had, where you went to, to lunch and dinner and whether you were driven to work in a black car. So that was kind of my exposure to the money world when I first graduated from college. So I kind of fell into that, I guess you would say. And also you were always kind of like, well, I will always make more money going forward. So you kind of spent what you had. And in some cases spent more than you had, which is was our case. We paid for our own wedding. We had some credit card debt coming out of when we first got married And eventually we kind of figured it out, but it it took us a couple of years to kind of figure out that was probably not the best way to to move forward. So together we figured that out and ultimately became more of the money vigilant mindset. But initially we were the money worshipers or, you know, the people that are basically spending everything they, they have. 
it was the culture that I grew up in, I guess you would say. That ethos of money worship is very common in Wall Street. I'm wondering how you turned the corner and specifically how you both turned the corner, because as you're telling us the story of how you grew up here, it definitely seems like Marge and you were both in it together. And this was a change that you made together. So what changed your minds? (laughs) We were avid skiers. We would go up to Vermont every weekend. We were weekend warriors, if you will. And we met a number of people up there that were living in the ski community, you know, kind of living the ski bum life. And we saw that that was intriguing, but obviously not, you know, wasn't something we were able to or even desired to do at the time. Funnily enough, we read an article that was about a ski bum and he and they had this saying they were living out of a car, you know, living the dream, right? Living the ski bum dream. And it was uh, make a little, uh, spend less, invest the rest. And that actually, you know, so we kind of adopted that motto. We didn't like the little part, so we changed it to make some. We switched it around to save and invest and live on the rest. So, you know, put savings first. And that really came about between kind of reading that, realizing that maybe living within your means made a lot more sense. And then reading books like The Wealthy Barber and The Millionaire Next Door kind of solidified that idea of pay yourself first. I think the wealthy barber talked about 10%. The millionaire next door talks about 20%. And we kind of just set the line at that point and just said, hey, that's pretty easy. Let's just pay ourselves first and live on the rest and everything should take care of itself. So that's how we kind of turn the corner, I guess you would say. You talked about this idea of being ski bums. Tell me about your shared dreams together of what the future looked like. Yeah, I guess when we were living on the East Coast, we were always like, you know, maybe one day, I guess, uh, you know, looking at the wealthy barber and so forth, there was some math in there. And this, again, was written in the 1990s. So stock market was doing well in the 1990s. And we kind of came up with this idea, you know, if we could just save a million dollars, we could live on a 10% return, you know, not thinking of sequence of return or risk or anything like that, but just say hey, 10% on a million dollars is 100,000 a year. And then we could just move to Vermont and become skiers. And that would be great. So that was kind of, I guess, our earliest kind of idea of what you would call today financial independence, but that was not really what we were calling it. We just said, hey, you know, if we could get to a million dollars at some point, we could live this dream of living in Vermont and, you know, converting a barn to live in and just ski every day. And then eventually we decided, you know, the Northeast skiing was not our of interest to us. It's an interesting idea, this theory that our dreams evolve and what actually started your financial path is not where you ended up. I guess, first things first, how did you know when it was time that you could retire? Was it that million dollar mark or how did you decide, okay, enough money is enough? Yeah. So we never really came to a point of saying X dollars is what we need. So I think what we did was we kind of did maybe what you would call coast fi slow fi today where we just kept pushing back against kind of the establishment, I guess you would say. We would say things like, well, I want to work from home and and maybe I'll do that. Or I don't want to take on that project because it will require too much time or travel. So I think over the years, we kind of evolved to what I would say people now call slow-fi. So while we were still accumulating assets, we weren't really having a target in mind, but we were adapting our lifestyle to what we the way we wanted to live without necessarily turning off that income stream in one fell swoop. 
And I think eventually, you know, I actually, when we moved to Colorado or the decision to move to Colorado, we weren't, maybe we would have been financially independent if we were lean fi or whatever, but we did not feel like we were ready to just stop earning money forever. But I did walk in and I quit my job in 2008 to move to Colorado just because we wanted to ski in Colorado instead of in Vermont. <laughs> and with the idea that maybe they would be interested in working out something, but I had to be ready for them to say, okay, see you later. And they did. And I actually did work out a deal to continue to work for them for a little bit. And then once we moved out to Colorado, that's when we started to say, now, how much do we really need to kind of turn off that spigot? And that's when I think we started figuring out what exactly we needed to really stop working completely. And it wasn't really until that point that we started to math that out. Am I correct that you, at least you, if not both of you, stopped working completely in 2015? No, I actually stopped working in, in 2015. She, We talked about whether she would stop. And she was like, you know, my job is so easy. She was an administrator at the police department. It had really good benefits. It had a great 457 plan. And she said, I'm just going to do this for a little while because, you know, it's so easy. I can make my, I really can decide when I go to work. She even had this rule that if it snows more than six inches, they knew she wouldn't come to work. You know, so she was definitely kind of set it up so that it, it was an easy job to do. And it wasn't mentally taxing or anything like that, you know, emotionally taxing sometimes because some things that come across the police department aren't the nicest things. But she decided, well, you know, for the next couple of years, I think I'm just going to stick it out. And then when she got sick, then she was like, I'm definitely not leaving now because I don't want to disrupt the health insurance situation. So for part part of the reason was kind of like the idea of some people that retire when one person retires and the other person keeps a job just for health insurance. So I'd say really fell into that category because she was literally taking home a negligible paycheck because we were banking it all in the 457 to really ramp that up for when she did leave, we would have access to that money because as soon as you leave work, you have full access to that 457. So we're trying to pile it into there as well. Knowing what you know now, right? Being able to look back at your history do you think that was a mistake? Do you ever regret that she didn't retire with you in 2015? Or do you think it, in a sense, fulfilled some sense of purpose for her and was important? I was always kind of involved, or at least, you know, a little bit before and certainly after I retired in the financial independence community. And I think she really enjoyed kind of the social aspect. She really had a, a good relationship with her police officers and they felt like family. And I think she was worried about maybe cutting that social connection. And again, she had, I think, five weeks of vacation. And so it really didn't impede us from doing the things or going the places we wanted to. Yes, we did have some dreams of, you know, maybe we'd live on an island one month. You know, when you live in the ski country, you know, you think about living in the near the water occasionally. <laughs> and uh, so maybe living, you know, in a remote space for a month out of a year. And those things we did not get to do, but we did get to do lengthy vacations to those areas. So I don't think there were any significant regrets. If I could rewind it and know exactly what the future held, maybe I would have said, yes, let's just call it a day and be done and, and do some things. But of course, then COVID dropped on everyone so that everyone fell into that same category. So at that point, it was like, well, why it's very easy to do this job. And, and, and for a while, it was 100% remote anyway. So it was kind of kind of easy, 100% remote from an office that's eight miles down the road. But. 
So tell me what retirement felt like felt like for you, especially in the 2015 time period when Marge was still doing well and hadn't gotten sick yet. Was it what you thought it was going to be? You know, for me, I had worked at a home. So when I moved to Colorado, I was working out of the house from 2008 through 2015. So my day changed a little bit in that I didn't have this pressure of a job over me and, you know, obviously certain time behind a a computer every day, but it didn't change to the effect where I was no longer going into an office or something like that. But the, the amount of free time I had was definitely a space that I had to fill. And for the winters, it's easy. I can just pick up my skis and go skiing all day, right? So <laughs> in the summer, I can do some of the, you know, some things like mountain biking and hiking and things like that. But, um, and of course, the household chores started to pile onto my side of the table as a result of her working, which is fine. There's no problems with that. But today, I, I still do. There's a lot of just household stuff that you do that fills your day. And I've always been an avid reader. So it was very easy to kind of fill my time with reading. I read the Wall Street Journal every morning. I still do, you know, and I fill my day with a lot of reading and and physical activity and things like that. So that wasn't really the hard part. The hard part was the turning off the income spigot. It took me a couple of years to get comfortable with no money really is coming in the door. How do you feel about that now? Because you and I have talked a lot about the fact that now you actually have to force yourself to spend sometimes because you have this money that you have more than you thought you would have. And you feel it's a shame that it's not being used. Talk about how that feels in retrospect. Now that you're looking back at your younger self, are you wondering why it took you so long? Well, I, you know, to give a little bit of history, the first two years where I had to actually start drawing money were terrifying. I did all the numbers. I dove into, you know, the 4% rule. I, I dug deep into big earn. I mean, I read almost every single <laughs> post and I know it's hard to read all those posts from beginning to end, but I did. And even then I was like, okay, it, it looks like it'll make sense, but just actually doing it made it was very difficult. So I avoided it for two years. So the first year we had some assets where I had a classic car. We had some things that we could sell that we re- that weren't really important. So I avoided drawing down in the first year by raising money, by selling some assets that weren't really considered in the financial independence portfolio, if you will. In the second year, um, I worked for a small private company and I owned very tiny piece of it that I never really counted because I didn't have any control over it. They it was their responsibility to cash me out if and when they would. And in the second year they did, and and that paid for almost the second year. So it wasn't a big payout by any means, but it avoided a second year drawdown. And then eventually I figured out, okay, it's okay to pay myself. I was already two years ahead at that point because I hadn't drawn down anything in the first two years. So I kind of had a a buffer over and above the 3.25% bigger number, right? So I started getting comfortable. I started paying myself a paycheck. So it did kind of take two years to figure that out, but I was still spending even less. I think I was drawing less than 2%. I still draw about less than 2%, which Big Earn and I have had a conversation. He was actually my roommate at, at Camp Fly Southwest. And over the fire and a few beers, we had a conversation about, you know, when is the safe withdrawal rate? When is it, or the sequence of return risk go away? And he said, never. <laughs> you know? 
And I said, but if you're drawing less than 2%, isn't it really gone? He's like, oh, if you're drawing less than 2%, you're crazy. You know, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, now Big Earn says I'm crazy. <laughs> of course, Big um, Earn is Karsten Jasky, who is early retirement now, the blog, and has done a whatever 30-part series on safe withdrawal rates and sequence of return risk. Yeah, so I had to basically, so Kevin Sebesta, who's a friend of mine, also a, a campfire and, and involved in another group I'm in, um, said, you know what you really need is you need a fund bucket. You need to basically take some of that money out of your financial independence portfolio. And by th- that time we were having that conversation, that was a few years ago, so maybe five years in retirement, my sequence of return risk or my sequence of returns during that first five years, not only was it, it not bad, it was really good. So you kind of, I had some, as Kevin put it, cream on the top of the cake that I could clear off. And he said, you really need to just put it in a separate bucket and tell yourself you can spend that money, no holds barred. It's not going to affect your withdrawal rate. It's not even in your financial independence portfolio. And it will teach you to spend on things that you might not be comfortable with. And I've also had some conversations in this other group I'm in, and we talk about, you know, overcoming frugality because, you know, we, as people in this community, you tend to be savers and investors and so forth and flipping that switch to actually having to spend that money. And now God forbid, watch your portfolio decline in value, right? It's hard. And so you kind of have to retrain yourself and and that fun bucket has allowed me to retrain myself in some way. So doing things like maybe staying in a hotel that's a little nicer than I normally would. Or I even when I went to Camp Five in Florida, I flew first class. You know, it was one of those $99 upgrades. But hey, why not? Normally, I would say, well, I don't need that. But I did it. So the fun bucket, the small amount of money off to the side that allows you to do whatever you want on a whim and without, you know, consequences, without you having to think about, oh, my God, how is this going to affect my draw rate? You know, I don't know that I want to do that was a real savior and helping me learn how to spend again. You know, two things come to mind. One is this idea that we can logic our way through spending, but that's different than actually doing it. And I see this a lot with my peers too. We know the math. We know what the math says we should be able to do, but that's a whole different thing than actually taking the money out of the account and spending it. That's point one. Point two is, is I guess, a question for all of us, because at some point, We have to look at our own finances, knowing that we are unsure of what our future will bring. Do you think we in our community lean too conservative when it comes to spending in general? Yeah, I think that if we were to look back in time many years from now and look at the people in this community, I would bet an extremely high percentage are going to end up dying with a lot more money than they ever anticipated. Very few, and I would almost say, if any, will run out of money at what my other group likes to call end of plan, which is basically (laughs) the end of the financial plan, which is when you die. So we just like to call it end of plan. So at end of plan, I think very few people will run out of money in this community. I don't think that's the case nationwide, but I think within this financial independence community, that is probably, and that is what most people focus on is running out of money. What I think many people need to focus on is how do I, yes, not run out of money, but make sure I spend what I can and enjoy my life while I have that time 
as opposed to being so overly concerned about all the little aspects that might crop up. We're going to talk more about Marge's journey in a moment, but as I'm listening to your last answer, you know, I feel like this conversation takes us to do different places that are opposed to each other. One of these places is you never know what the future will bring. Maybe you will have a big health mishap and you might need extra money to pay for that. But then the other side says, maybe you'll have a health mishap and not be able to enjoy your money if you die young. So you should spend it today. Do you struggle with that dichotomy or did you? Because, you know, I struggle with which way of looking at the problem is the right one for most of us. Yeah, I did. I definitely had that issue. And I think what helped me solve that concern is instead of looking at it as this one big pile of money that needs to do everything, is to divide that pile of money up into different areas where it solves different things. So in other words, figure out an amount of that or a slice of that pie that is going to take care of your, you know, post 70 years, your end of life years or post 80 years or what have you, and figure out how you're going to do that. So for instance, you know, I have a lot of equity in my home. And so that is my long-term care plan, for example. So instead of buying long-term care insurance, and now that I'm single, if I go into a long-term care facility, I don't need my home anymore. So I basically have mentally segmented that home equity, which is pretty significant because I live in a resort community and there's no real mortgage on the house. It should more than take care of any long-term care. So now I've taken that off the table, right? And then there is some money I've segmented for potentially. So you have social security or I have social security. I've paid into that for many years and I have a pretty decent amount that will be coming to me. I will delay till age 70. But then I have also mathed out how much would I need to buy an annuity? And I know that word is terrible in this community, (laughs) but a single premium immediate annuity is kind of like the index funds of annuities. Uh, It's a low cost annuity and basically buying more social security. So you can buy a single premium immediate annuity for a certain amount that will basically provide you a stream of income for the rest of your life. So now you don't have to math out how long am I going to live, right? That's up to the, the insurance company has to worry about that. You're you're pooling your mortality credits with others. So if you die early, yeah, it's not the greatest deal. But if you end up living very long, you end up getting the mortality credits from someone else. So basically side pocketing a certain amount of money that I can add to that social security benefit that will basically give me a very comfortable lifestyle for the rest of my life And I've mathed it out at age 70 because that's when I will start my social security. So now I've basically taken care of the back end of the plan, right? So now I have what, okay, so now what's left? What can I do with that? Well, I've got to fill that time period between now and age 70. So how much do I need to spend a year between there? And I can kind of math out because it's a finite period of time. You can figure out how how many assets do I need to fund that life? And then- If there's anything left, which in my case there is, that effectively is your fun bucket. So you can say you could literally spend all of that in the front first five years. You could spend it over, you know, the next 15 years, or you could spread it out over what you think your lifetime is going to be. But what you will find is that most people are most active and able to travel and 
have the ability to travel when they're younger, not when they're in their 90s, right? So you probably want to front load some of that stuff, but you need to math out how much do you have to be able to front load that stuff. So that's an exercise I've gone through and it's enabled me to kind of solve those, you know, tail end concerns of running out of money, but also figuring out, well, how much do I have in excess? And then how, how can I choose to spend that? or give it away or whatever I choose to do with that. We are talking to Mark Troutman. He was married in 1990. His wife, Marge, was a constant companion during their financial and retirement journey. She was diagnosed with sarcoma in 2019 and died in 2021. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Yo, taking stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life has now been out two weeks. Audible has been out one week. I'm getting all sorts of great feedback. If you have read the book, please go to Amazon and leave a review. This is the way people are going to decide whether to buy it or not. If you want to see me in person, I'm going to be in Longmont, Colorado. August 19th is our book launch party there. Unfortunately, all the tickets are sold out. I say sold out, but they were for free. Uh, But I'm sure there'll be some tickets that open up. So if you're still interested, let us know. I also am going to do an event probably in San Diego in early October, right before the Camp Phi Southwest. So I'm hoping to see some of you there. I've been kicking around the idea of also doing a book launch party in Chicago. I'm wondering if anyone is interested. So if you are interested, please let me know. It has been so exciting to launch Taking Stock to get everybody's feedback. I just got an email from someone who wants to buy books for his residency program in family medicine. 
I'm excited to get this book out to people. If you have a book club and want me to speak at it, I'd be more than happy to zoom in. I'm just so excited that everyone is getting a chance to read this pretty much work that I've spent the last few years doing, mixing my life as a hospice doctor with that of a personal finance blogger and podcaster. And I can't wait to share it with all of you. Now let's get back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Mark Troutman, who is the blogger behind MarksMoneyMind.com. And we are discussing his journey to financial independence and how it was affected by the death of his wife, Marge. Mark, talk to us about Marge when she started to get sick. What exactly happened and what was going on in your life at the time? She had a, a small lump on her arm, which she went to a local doctor and they thought it was just kind of a cyst or something like that. And she had no, you know, physical ailments or anything like that. And it was removed. And of course, they always do a biopsy just to be sure. And it came back as sarcoma. So that was a shock to us. And we didn't even, I mean, that wasn't even in our vocabulary. We didn't even know what sarcoma was. You hear about breast cancer and lung cancer and things like that. But sarcoma is one of those cancers that certainly we were not familiar with. And so we live in Crested Butte, Colorado, which is kind of up in the Rocky Mountains. So the closest main you know, hospitals are in Denver. So we went to a specialist in Denver who specializes in sarcoma. And she said, oh, well, we're just going to go back in, make sure everything was removed. No big deal. And we will likely do seven weeks of radiation afterwards just to be sure. So they went in, they did the surgery, there were the margins were zero, I guess it was. So there was no extra material there. They did the seven weeks radiation and said, well, you should be good to go. You know, odds of it coming back are pretty low in your case, so you should be fine. And then basically about, I think it was that December, she started having some issues with feeling in her arm and so forth. So, and other one side of her, basically. And so what we found out was that it went to the brain, which is very rare. She had brain so open, you know, brain surgery. Then that was treated with gamma knife radiation as well. I mean, gamma knife surgery, I guess it is pretty basically laser surgery to your brain. Then just a, it's been a long ordeal. So it came back a, a second time to the brain and the lung and so forth. And she did go through full chemo and so forth had a super, super positive attitude throughout this whole time period, always assumed it would work out. We both had that, I think literally until maybe the last final weeks where it was the, it was a tough conversation by the, by the brain surgeon, the gamma knife brain surgeon, who basically said, yes, we can go back in and treat this, but it's systemic. And I remember her saying, I hate that word hmm. systemic. And basically at that point, the chemo had not solved the problem. It was everywhere. And I don't think she ever really came to terms with the fact that it was not curable. I think I did in the last few weeks and it was hard, super hard, but it was a two year battle uh, in and out of hospitals. And it was, it was an ordeal. Let's go back to when she had the first surgery and radiation and they said, margins are clear. Things look good. Was there a pause for Marge? Was she like, oh, I, it's time for me to reevaluate my life. I just went through this big thing. Thank God, you know, it's better. Yeah, I mean, actually, so this was kind of in the June, July period. Mm -hmm. And actually, I met a lot of people in the financial independence community through that. Actually, Amberly Grant, who you've had on the show before, that's how we met was 
we stayed in her Airbnb downstairs and got to be really good friends and are to this day. But yeah, we kind of reassessed things and said, you're, you're done at the end of this year. I mean, you're, yeah. you're leaving your job. We're done. We're not, you know, we're going to go do stuff. And, you know, it was just like, okay, well, you know, we'll do that at the end of the year. And then it came back with a vengeance in November. By that point, the end of the year didn't come soon enough. And then at that point, we were like, we can't leave this insurance situation. The ACA was kind of, you know, because there was going to be a change in the administration, we said, well, we want to see where where that falls out. And we also didn't want to rock the boat on her doctor. So, So that kind of tied us into her working beyond the end of the year. But so that was kind of the issue there. But the plan was, yeah, for without the recurrence, the plan was, at the end of the year, you're done and we're going our merry way. You know, it's easy to look at Marge's story and say, boy, she should have stopped working in 2015 with you. You guys should have enjoyed life and done a bunch of things. But clearly the insurance was a godsend, right? Yeah. And I tell people this all the time because I know there's a lot of people in the financial independence community. I've heard people say, I'm just going to go out without insurance for a period of time and I'll figure it out. Or I'm really healthy and I'll just buy catastrophic insurance. Her medical bills were well over $2 million. And that insurance company and the hospitals were fighting frequently because some of these bills, I think the gamma knife radiation treatment was 700 and something thousand dollars for a 45, two 45 minute sessions. There was arguments between the two. If we didn't have an insurance company between us, they would be suing us for $700,000, right? I mean, this would have completely blown up our financial independence plan no question. So, but our total out of pocket, now we were paying Cobra and so forth when they ultimately did lay her off, which is a whole nother story. And I won't get into that, but that we were paying Cobra. So we had to pay that. I think our out of pocket, not including insurance premiums was only about $30,000 on a two plus million dollar bills. Of course, the insurance company didn't quite pay that much because they negotiated it. But I think out of pocket, the insurance company still paid probably close to a million five. Yeah, you know, it really drives home the point. You are not financially independent off a net worth. Like you have to have the right insurances, you have to write have the right protections, the right risk mitigation. And people get so caught up in that net worth number. And I think your and Marge's experience just drives home this idea that you have to have the right insurances, you have to have the right protections in place if you really want to consider yourself financially independent. Yeah, I think it's a critical component of that whole story. It's not just how much do you save, but how do you protect against those hopefully never occurring incidents, but if they do occur to you, that you do have that protection and don't blow up your plan as a result. Yeah, it's the best kind of wasted money, the money you put on insurance premiums and you hope it's wasted. Tell me, you you know, it sounds like Marge was very hopeful and very forward-looking do you think she had any regrets at the end? Did she voice anything said, wow, I really would have done this different if I knew I was going to be here today? You know, it's interesting that that five regrets thing. I don't recall where we heard that first. And I know it wasn't right at the end that we went through this. And I think it might have been, and it might have even been before she was sick. Yeah, but we Brian, went through. Brownie wears five regrets of the dying. Yeah, right. We went through those. And you know, literally neither one of us have any of those regrets. And I think it's because we've always lived our life the way we've wanted to. We've always, you know, my father was one that always said, oh, you should go to work for, you know, 
Fidelity or T. Rowe Price or whatever, you can make all this money. I used to manage a mutual fund for a very small company. And he always thought you could go manage it for a big company. And I was always like, man, it's not the way I want to live my life. So, you know, we always lived the life we wanted to live. We always lived where we wanted to live. And we really had no regrets. So that gave me a lot of comfort in her after she passed away that knowing that, you know, A, we had this conversation not on the last day, but that she didn't have any regrets. And I, it also gave me a reason to think about, do I have any regrets? And I don't. And I try to live my life today so that I won't have any of those regrets. The only thing I think that she had trouble with was, you know, she did say, I won't be able to see my daughter's, you know, first child or her even graduate from college, which she did this past spring. And that was kind of on her mind because she died in in July of last year and graduation was going to be in May of the following year or getting married. That was, you know, her other big thing. And my daughter also is regretful of that. But we also, my wife and I did have a conversation. I said, you know, as parents, I think the biggest thing that we can do is, is realize that our child is good to go in the world. And you've been able to see that. If you, you know, if any of us passed when our children were, let's say, 10 or 12, or I know, as in the case with your father, that's tough. You don't know if your kid's going to be okay. So when you pass away, and I told her, I said, you know, your daughter is in good shape. She's <laughs> listened to the financial tenants so from a financial <laughs> perspective. She's good. But also as a human being, she's good. I, and I think that gave her solace for sure. We talk often in the personal finance community about numbers. We talk a lot about money. I want to talk about community. By the time this happened, you had mentioned Amberly Grant and you had stayed in her, in one of her apartments when you were there, you sublet it. And you were pretty enmeshed in the financial community at that time. Tell me about what that community meant to you as you were going through all of this. Yeah, um, so enorm- it was an enormous benefit, absolutely huge benefit. So as you know, you and I met in Midwest, Campfire Midwest, and I think it was September, which was literally a few months after she passed away. And some and Amberly was speaking there and said, you know, I'm speaking in Midwest. And I was like, well, I wasn't really planning to go to that one, but I'm going to go because I want to be around this community. I need that right now. And you were one of the first people I met there. And that was super helpful. And I appreciate that. And given your background, it was super helpful just to understand where I was coming from, I guess you would say. So the community as a whole has been my kind of connection piece. I know it sounds weird in that it's not, you know, physically in my backyard, but through Zoom meetings, you know, throughout the week, and months, and then having, you know, personal meetups with Camp Fies, and I do things in Longmont and stuff like that. That's not too far away from me. It's far enough that I can't go whenever I want, but it's close enough that I can go when there's fun things to do. So this community has been hugely supportive. And even to the point where some friends reached out in the community and just said, hey, I'm going to be in Crested Butte. Do you mind if I come and hang out? We'll go skiing. We'll do some things. And if it weren't for this community, those people wouldn't be showing up on my doorstep and just saying, let's go do something. So tell me about what life looks like today, specifically in comparison to what your kind of dreams of retirement would be. Like I said, some of our dreams were just, you know, we would live on an island a month out of the year or do a lot of traveling. And I think a lot of people in 
that kind of think about what will my life be like after financial independence. I think travel usually is at the top of the list, but that's not really something that you're going to do forever. I think a lot of people kind of get it out of their system and then that's kind of done. So I've done some of that and I've done it to the effect where I'll call people and say, Hey, I'm going to be an XYZ. You know, I got an extra room. Let's, let's go. If you want to come down and hang out for a little while, that's great. I know my daughter's taking me up on that. So I've tried to continue to do some of the things that we kind of dreamed of. And now I'm doing it with my daughter and friends instead of my spouse, which, you know, is definitely a change. And sometimes there's some loneliness there, you know, you'll get to a place where no one's there except for you. And I have to kind of learn how to immerse myself into that social culture, which is difficult because my wife and I met when we were basically teenagers and we were together, you know, the whole time. So we were our each other's partner. We didn't need the the outside social was a bonus, but it wasn't a necessity. Now I'm finding I've got a, and I'm still learning how to do this because it's only been a year, but how do I improve those social connections. And certainly it's very easy with the financial independence community because we have something common to talk about and and a place, a launching pad, I guess you will. But I, I still have yet to learn how to do that in my own community well. And certainly if I'm traveling, I've even asked for friends that are singles because I've never really been single my whole life. If you really think about it, I lived at home, I got married and I lived with my spouse my whole life. So I've asked, you know, people in the community that travel by themselves, how do you do it? Like when you show up somewhere, how do you immerse yourself and even just have a conversation? So I've had simple conversations with people like if you're sitting out at dinner by yourself and you see someone else doing the same, do you go talk to that person? Do you <laughs> say, like, how do you do that without being weird, you know? And I had a friend who was a solo traveler and she said, this is what you could have done in that situation. And it was a female person, but I wasn't interested in that respect. It was just a one single traveler and I was a single traveler. And I said, how do you do that without that person making it feel like you're coming on to them? And, and she said, just go over there and say, hey, I see you're eating alone. I'm here by myself. I'm going to be sitting over there. And if you care to join me, great. You know, just wanted to put that out there instead of sitting down at their table and trying to strike up a conversation. And then it puts the onus on them to come over and have a conversation. So those are, I mean, it sounds silly, but these are things I'm having to, to learn now. How do you do that? Have your feelings about money or beliefs about money evolved or changed over the last few years? And if so, how? The idea of increasing wealth is not as much of a concern as maybe it would have been in the past, like uh, stacking Benjamins, I guess you would say. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's really, how do I use that money to have fun or experiences with other people? And one book I did read recently was Dive, Dive is Zero. Mm -hmm. And basically it talks about creating experiences. So I'm all about spending money on experiences now and creating what the book calls memory dividends, and because those are things that when you die, you will remember those experiences and those memory dividends last a lifetime. So my daughter and I talk about that a lot. Like, so what are we going to do with the fun bucket to have some experiences that we will enjoy? So we went to Belize for a couple of weeks, even just going to Camp Fi together was an experience that we've had together. 
And, you know, we went to a concert recently last weekend, for example, that she just called and said, hey, this concert's playing locally. Are you interested? I was like, yeah, let's go. She's like, yeah, fun bucket all the way. You know? <laughs> so we use that as a term now to have these experiences. So I would say now it's more about figuring out how to not just spend willy nilly, but on those things that are going to provide those memory dividends for a lifetime. And certainly I'm, I'm much less focused on things. In fact, I want to get rid of things because now I look at it and say, well, if something happens to me, my daughter's going to have to deal with all this stuff. So I'm very much interested in trying to simplify that as much as possible for her. Hopefully that day is no near no time soon, but that is in the back of my mind. Don't, don't get more stuff, just have more fun and more experiences. Most of the world doesn't pay enough attention to money. Here in our community, we're sometimes somewhat obsessed with it. Do you think we concentrate on getting to financial independence too quickly? Like, are we trying to get there too fast as a community here in in the personal finance world? I would say initially, yes. So when I first kind of dove into this community, I think that's what it was all about. How fast can I get there and how quick can I quit this job that I hate? I think that was the underlying theme or at least those that were talking about this, that was the underlying theme. I have seen a huge shift in the last five years towards balance. And actually, part of my discussion, and my daughter and I actually were the ones that did the presentation together at Camp 5, so that was kind of fun. I talked about the, the importance of balance. Had I not had balance with my wife on this journey, today I would be sitting here with an extreme amount of regret. Then I would be saying, we really should have done this differently. But because we had balance the whole way, we both talked about this. Like, did we do it right? And we we both feel like, yeah, we had the right amount of balance. We were probably, and I, as I've mentioned to people, you know, we were, I look at savings rates based on gross income, right? So taxes count. So I said, you know, what what were our average, you know, savings rate? And basically it was about one third went to taxes. One third went to spending, you know, on on needs, wants, and wishes, and one third went to savings. So it was never a sixty percent, seventy percent, even a fifty percent savings rate. It was basically about thirty three percent. And I we found that that was a comfortable balance. Now we did have decent income, so that was you know doable. I think this idea of balance is definitely starting to come through in the community. I guess you would say. And I do like the idea of, you know, people are talking about coastify and slowfi and taking a sabbatical and taking some time off or downshifting. So I think the evolution of financial, the financial independence community, probably just because more people are coming into it, the early people are tend to be your extreme, right? Mm-hmm. And then as the base broadens, you get more of a dispersed view on how this can be. So I'm thinking of your daughter here. What was Marge's legacy and and what do you hope your legacy will be? One of the things I learned from Warren Buffett was honesty and integrity. If you have that, you can go a long way. So that is always important. So it's a non-financial aspect. Obviously, understanding finances, living within your means, you know, she's up. We always instituted this kind of quote rule in our family of you always save 20% of whatever comes in the door. And ultimately, you save and invest that appropriately for the long term. And some of it might be for the short term. So she got that at an early age. But basically, also, she is she just graduated from college. She has a, a 
business degree in accounting. She's pursuing her master's next year. She has a great internship this summer. And she's kind of figured that out, but she's also realized that who she works for is very important. So not necessarily going after the the job that will pay her the most, but the one that will give her the most satisfaction. So she has learned that the almighty dollar is not what it's all about, that there are other elements that are important. And, you know, in this thing that we did at Camp Phi, I turned it around and asked her what, what were some of the questions or some of the things that we did that helped you on your path. And she said, basically modeling. You know, I, I was able to see how you guys did it and that you did it with balance and, and you know, you, you saved a certain percent, but you enjoyed life and so forth. So I think, you know, we've set her off in a good path by just modeling the, you know, what works for us and maybe will work for her. Mark, do you worry about money anymore? I don't really know. I, I The only thing I worry about, and I don't want to say it's a worry, but of course, I don't want to be one of those people that turns around and says, boy, I really could have done even more than, you know, my fun bucket allowed or whatever. You know, maybe we should have gone on some crazy around the world trip or something like that. So I, I don't worry about running out of money at this point. I do worry about maybe not enjoying as much as I could. But again, a lot of the things I get enjoyment about don't really cost a lot. So that's okay. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I see this show as a celebration of both you and Marge, because it sounds like you both did a fantastic job of learning how to live for today, as well as deferred gratification. And I think that is the hardest balance that we are all struggling with. We don't know when our time is up. And so people who defer all gratification to some future events someday when they're going to be retired may find that they don't have as much life as they expected. On the other hand, if we're frivolous and waste all our money away now, we won't be able to live out hopefully some of those really good retirement years where we feel free. It's a mix of both. And I think your story helps demonstrate how to do it right, even in the face of tragedy. I want to thank you for coming on and telling us your story I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and what is the best way for people to reach you? So first and foremost, what is going on with Mark Troutman? Well, so the summer is fun in Colorado. I mean, we don't have this heat wave that everyone else seems to be having. It is warmer than usual, but that's okay. So a lot of outdoor activities here in the mountains in the summer. I have a couple of Camp Fives scheduled for uh, the fall. My mother is having her 80th birthday this year, so I'm looking forward to going back and and she's back on the East Coast. So that's pretty much it for now. And I have some friends that live in different parts of the world that are probably going to push me out of my comfort barrier of <laughs> traveling to exotic places. So that's kind of penciled in for the future to do some, you know, maybe halfway around the world trips. So stay tuned for that. And what is the best way for people to reach out to you if they have questions? Sure. So I do have a blog, marksmoneymind.com. There's a contact page on there if you want to email me. I am pretty active on Facebook if you just search Mark Troutman and also on Twitter at Mark's Money Mind. So those are probably the two best places to reach out to me. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Mark Troutman. That's a wrap. 
Cool. I leave things running, as you know, just for a few minutes as we talk. Yeah. So do you think we told your story? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think it helped that I had that uh, presentation at Camp Fi because I could regurgitate. <laughs> you, so. you, kind of, you kind of knew what some of your thoughts were. Yeah, well, I had to go. I had to do a lot of deep thinking. And actually, that was a really fun exercise. So I asked Stephen, would it be okay if, if I had my daughter up there? And I think he was a little hesitant. I think he was like, <laughs> I don't know your daughter. I didn't invite her to speak. What's going on? <laughs> and it went great because she's super composed and, and was great. And basically, it was, you know, kind of like we have these conversations in our household. And, um, you know, a lot of what we talked about um, came up in that in that talk. But it was really trying to show that um, you can talk about this with your family. And they and I was I learned a lot. You know, what what did we do? OK, and what maybe we didn't do OK. And and um, and, and it gave me a lot of comfort, you know, uh, just like when I was talking to Marge about, you know, we did we did well with her and it gave me even more comfort that yeah we did and even people came up afterwards and said wow how do I get my daughter to be like that <laughs> you know? so it in a selfish way it was a kind of a very comforting thing and also to put something down on you know because we did film it taped it yeah, so yeah. something that she now has you know which I think is great you know I usually or I I, <laughs> I loosely use the word tragedy um but as I listen to your story and hear you talk, there's a lot of triumph there. So, right, this idea that Marge died young, way too young, and certainly I imagine quite a bit of pain for you and your family. On the other hand, you seem to have lived triumphantly and intentionally and built a real life that you are proud of. And I can see it in your face and hear it in your voice as you talk about her and you talk about your daughter. Um and so it's it's hard, right? Because in some senses, this is actually a celebration of both of you. But it's hard to talk about celebration when you're also talking about something that that was incredibly hard and sad, right? Yeah, I think that, and that's what you know. You talk about purpose and identity, and in a way, I think you know this story is does resonate with people that I've talked to, and it does make them think. Hey, you know, especially the younger people. So I, you know, I have a lot of friends that are a lot younger than I am. And they've seen this story firsthand. They know her yeah. and that, and it helps. I mean, it's certainly, you know, when you're the person on the receiving end, it affects you the most, but it does affect other people. And I think a lot of these other younger people have realized, Hey, you know, maybe I won't live forever. And maybe I do need to, I, I definitely have seen the people that I'm closest with start to think about, you know, maybe I need to enjoy the journey more uh, and be less focused on that destination. Um, so, you know, maybe that's my purpose is just to help people see this story. And, you know, we feel like we had a great life. And I know she would be saying the same thing behind the scenes. So, yeah. And and what I love about it is something that you always hear me talk about with my book, too. It's it's purpose and finances at the same time together, as opposed to one than the other. Right. So Correct. a lot of us make the mistake of doing finances first and then looking for purpose later. And I just don't feel like that's your story. I don't think it was Marge's story. Um, and it shows. And, and again, yeah. I think maybe that's the difference between hearing your story and saying, oh, my God, that's so tragic versus hearing your story and saying those people knew how to live. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. it's a very different feel. And I suspect the the difference in feel is because you both were very intentional about figuring out purpose and working it into your financial lives. 
Yeah. And I would also say about, you know, she had such a positive attitude through the whole thing and made it, you know, a horrible situation a lot easier. If she was kicking and screaming and yelling the whole way, it would have been a miserable experience. Um, but because she was so positive, um, it made what was in retrospect, a really difficult time. You don't even realize how difficult it is until after the fact. And you look back and say, I cannot believe we just went through that. I mean, we were literally in hospitals constantly and traveling and so forth. Um, But to have that positive attitude, I think that really shifted it. And then I would, I give a huge shout out to hospice too. They were only in there for the last five days, but we both told each other many years ago before she was even sick, neither one of us want to die in a hospital. You know, we want to, because my father was in hospice when he passed away and it's such a better way to go than being surrounded by machinery and, and just all that. And, and there were a couple of times when she was coming out of brain surgeries, she said, I don't want to die here. Um, And um, so, you know, huge shout out to the hospice teams all over the country. Yeah. We always say in hospice, people tend to die the way they live. It sounds like Marge lived in general with a lot of optimism and grace, and therefore she probably died with them too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to thank you for doing this. This is, a, a, I think it's going to be an excellent episode and I can't wait to edit it up and put it out there. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 